A harmony of Luke 3, 1 through 22, Matthew 3, 1 through 12, Mark 1, 9 through 20, and John 1, 19 through 51. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herod Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were torn open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself 
did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned, saw them following, and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He, found, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of God. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under a fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's word. Well, that was short. I can't believe it. Hey, if you, uh, if you have kids with you, you're welcome to take them back to the kids' room at this time. And uh, Julia, thank you. That was, uh, that was incredible. And we had no idea Julia's family was going to be here. It's almost as if we, we planned that, right? I'm just going to give her a solid six minutes um, to uh, show her parents that she really can read. And um, <coughs> yeah, and she's doing a great job. Let's, uh, let's pray together before we jump into this and uh, consider, yeah, what we might learn about being a group of diverse disciples from what we read uh, this evening. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to praise you and thank you for our church, for the people who are gathered here together, for those who are with us on Zoom, for those who are gathered in other churches and other homes uh, throughout our city, our state, our country, our world. Thank you for the church and how big it is, for how diverse it is, for how many different voices there are, from the the incredible ways that you shed light on your word and your truth through those different voices, through the different experiences that we have. And we praise you for that. We thank you for that. And I pray that this evening, as we consider what we've heard, read to us tonight, that we would learn um, to apply some of this to ourselves, our context, our church and that we would be a faithful church uh, that follows after you together. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, uh, yeah, this particular uh, sermon is kind of anchored in the person of Andrew, uh, which is, uh, and, and it's loose. A couple weeks ago, I shared to you about John, and I kind of interpreted that as beloved type um, disciples. And of course, uh, that's where 
we're making some big assumptions here because we don't know everything about who these disciples were. We don't have their journals uh, or anything like that. We have their, them telling us about Jesus, not about themselves necessarily. Uh, by the way, if you wanted to listen to that and you tried and you got weird slow-mo version, um, it's fixed. So you can go online and listen to that. It was Mother's Day and a lot of, a lot of us weren't here. Uh, but we talked about John last week, of course. John covered Peter um, and in all of these, we're acknowledging, as I said, there's a lot we don't know. And, and when it comes to Andrew, um, and I want to lump in Philip and Nathaniel in, into here as well a little bit, we know even less than we know about, say, a, a Peter or a John. But we're going to use Andrew as a starting point, Philip and Nathaniel as well. And they're this string of friends who came to Jesus through Andrew, or so it seems to me from the reading of the Scripture. Um, if, you, if you're watching The Chosen, we've kind of acknowledged that The Chosen is out there and is highlighting some of the, the lives of the disciples. The Chosen has Philip as a prior disciple of John the Baptist who introduced Andrew to John the Baptist, but we don't really, we don't really know if that's the case. Um, that's an interesting angle to kind of diversify the characters on that show, but Andrew may have followed John first, it seems to me. Um, but there's some interesting things about these three disciples that I, I just want to highlight really quick before I go into the main idea. And the, the interesting things that I've seen in here as I, as I looked into their lives were, one, they were all connected through their hometown of Bethsaida. And so they were likely friends or at least acquaintances. And the, if, you, if you listen to, there's different types of theory out, out there on how to do evangelism, but kind of the relational evangelism people will point to moments like this and say, look, people usually come to Jesus on the arm of a trusted friend. And that is, that is often very true. And that's, uh, that's kind of what we're seeing here. These, these disciples originally followed Jesus, not because they came to, you know, they heard a, heard a convincing argument or they changed their worldview and then reconsidered or something like that. They came with the friend. They came with a brother, came with a friend uh, because they said, we found the one. And they said, okay. And they, they came and saw and followed after Jesus. Um, these guys and Peter as well, because they invited Peter, seem to prove this point that you can invite your friends to Jesus. And that might be a very powerful way to bring them. But it also makes the point that it's not enough just to follow Jesus yourself and let other people observe that, which is, I think, something in, in our type of circles we tend to feel more comfortable with. But these these men invited their friends very specifically, and they believed so much in Jesus. They were like, you need to come and see this person. You need to follow after the one that we found. And so I think we learn a couple things, that people probably do come on the arm of a trusted friend, and they might believe you if you tell them that you've really found something. Um, and, and if you're convinced and kind of actually really invite them to come and follow Jesus with you. So we have friends here who spread the word. Um, another thing that you'll notice is Andrew and Philip only had Greek names. That's a, that's a little interesting nuance we don't tend to spot in the English, but that's an indicator for us that their families were pretty assimilated with Greek culture. And so these, if you're thinking about the, the diversity of the disciples, you have you know, some of the disciples who you have a zealot, you have Matthew, the tax collector, who's kind of in league with Rome. You have some of them who are probably a little more devout as far as Judaism goes. And potentially, Andrew and Philip, if they grew up in families that didn't even give them Hebrew names, 
They were in a, a little more assimilated families that weren't maybe as devout. Now, the pendulum always swings, right? So perhaps if they had the non-devout family, maybe they were kind of more interested than their parents were, right? I know that happens a lot with us. Like if you have the really religious parents, sometimes you're like, no, thanks. And then sometimes if you have the parents who are kind of laissez-faire, you're like, I'm doing this unlike you. So it's, it's hard to say. But we, we learned something about them. They were, their families were probably more assimilated into Greek culture. Third, this string of friends came to Jesus through John the Baptist, who Andrew and most likely the Apostle John were already following and listening to. And this is where I get my title for the sermon, this idea of critical disciples. Um, And again, admitting this is an educated guess, but I think that people who were attracted to following John the Baptist must have been a certain type of person Um, because John the Baptist was intense. So if, again, if you're watching The Chosen, um, Andrew is kind of this cheery guy who has really bad dance moves, right? And so that's, that's how they cast him in there was like cheery guy who, who can't really stay on rhythm um, at the wedding and, and stuff like that. And so he comes across as kind of a goofy, happy-go-lucky dude. You know, I don't know. John the Baptist is yelling at people, denouncing, calling them brood of vipers. You know, there's a chance that Andrew was kind of had a little edge to him as well and was kind of into that. And maybe he was kind of a critic. Um, he, he definitely followed a man who was known for eccentricities, for sure, but denunciations, brood of vipers, meddling in the life of Herod, the Jewish king, denouncing him for marrying his brother's wife, which got him, you know, decapitated and plattered eventually. And it's John the Baptist, not you know, not everybody was going to follow that, right? Do you, I, I think I could think of people, I think of myself, you know, what are the chances of me hearing about a guy that's denouncing everybody out in the wilderness and being like, I'm going to go check that out. I mean, those are the kind of people I go, I'm not going to talk to that guy. Um, but I know some people like that kind of thing. So, you know, I don't know. He's into denunciations. Look, uh, we know preachers who are like that, right? I mean, I don't know if you you, for those of you who are kind of in church circles, you could just have a little, let's just have a little chat here about some of the people we're into, right? I mean, some people will say, John Piper, whoa, you know, that's intense, right? But come on, has anybody ever heard Paul Washer? Like, yeah, if you've heard Paul Washer, John Piper's kind of moderate, right? But then again, Paul Washer, Paul Washer, he's just passionate compared to if Vody Bauckham's telling you how to father your children, like, Paul Washer seems just passionate. Vody's like intense, right? And then, I don't know, like if you get, you know, I don't know, Mark Driscoll on talking about anything in which somebody disagrees with Mark Driscoll, he's intense, right? I don't know, anything. Like there are preachers and they attract groups, like they attract people when they're intense. But it's not just preachers. Some of us Christians tend toward the critical as well. We're We're known, Christians are known for denouncing things on social media, right? And people tend to know what Christians are against. Um, Interestingly, John Piper's son got in the the newspaper. This is like kind of sad stuff because he's denouncing evangelicalism, which has got to be really hard for his dad. But somebody commented, they said, it's just the same approach. Piper denounces one thing, his son denounces, they're the same style, 
just aimed at different things. And John Piper's son, guess what? He has a million followers for denouncing. Like, it, it draws a crowd, um, even not on social media. Some of us, I think, tend to like a good tongue lashing. Um, I've noticed, you know, I, <laughs> Seth Reamer once said, he said something about, like, you know, Nick, uh, I forget what he said, like, you know, Nick, Nick tells us what's, what's going on, and you tell us a good story or something. And, uh, but every once in a while, when I, get, when I get frustrated up here, like, there's, I've had people come up to me and go, oh, that was a good sermon, you know? I'm like, ooh, okay, I see, that's Mike, right, with the teeth, that whole thing. Um, but then others, others of you who, if, if I give the really inspiring, you know, I, I come up with a really great story with, about my dad, right? That's when, that's when I hear you come up and you're like, oh, thank you, you know, whoo, I feel, feel pumped. Some of us think the preaching is good if you get like a high five and a hug out of it. And some of us, I think, feel the preaching is good if we just got reprimanded. Like there's some, some draw that folks have to like, some people like it when it's like, you know, I don't, I don't understand it. And some of us teach more like that naturally. Like I just said, Nick, you know, this is why we, we assign Nick sermons about like unconditional love, right? We look at the year, we're like unconditional love. Nick, you take that one. Cause you know, Nick's going to be like, you love people unconditionally, right? And, and it just kind of works. You're like, okay, I'll do that. You know? And that's why we give me sermons about hell. And like critical disciples, because I'm going to do this whole, you know, like mild Jerry Seinfeld thing. And, and you'll walk away going, okay, they're, they're critical disciples aren't that bad. Um, we're trying to press against our own natural tendencies here. But here's the, here's the point. Some of us lean critical and, and we want to see others called to the carpet and even ourselves. And I think those are the kind of people that would probably be really into John the Baptist. If you see, you see Andrew and Philip, Philip and go, goes and gets Nathaniel, right? That's his other friend. And what does Nathaniel say about Jesus? Can, any, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, come, these are, that, think about this friend group. This is not the friend group that's just always like, oh man, how are you doing today? You know, this is the friend group that is always cutting each other off at the knees. That's how it seems to me. So at this point, I, wanna, I just want to acknowledge again our series. Jesus calls different types of people, and this is a beautiful thing. It's diversity but it makes things difficult. Think about it. This is kind of an interesting thought. Peter, to me, in the scripture, seems a little more impulsive, and he doesn't appear to have been one of the, the devotees of John the Baptist. And I wonder if, you know, maybe Peter was a little more of an action-oriented idea guy. I'm probably totally contradicting John last week because I wasn't here. But, um, but maybe he was kind of this, like, you know, action-oriented, going-for-it guy. And maybe Andrew was always kind of seeing the dark side of the cloud, going, like, you're probably going to mess that up, bro. Like, that's wrong again, you know? I mean, maybe, maybe when Peter and Andrew are following Jesus, they're kind of bumping heads a little bit. And then it's probably difficult for people like Matthew, who is already under the critical eye of the entire society, right, to, to be with people who followed John the Baptist. I mean, it talked in here about how tax collectors came to him and said, what do we need to do? And he gave them hard words, right? I mean, so now... Matthew's kind of coming along and he's looking at people who heard maybe Jesus or maybe John the Baptist say that to him. I don't know. I mean, this, this wasn't an easy group to walk with, right? Now, if, if you were to try to, to plant a church today, and I've been in these conversations, I've been in churches that planted churches, I've been to church plant seminars, 
And, and what people tend to tell you to do is, is gather this church, and it's kind of a consumer model, and it's honestly what we're all into, so don't roll your eyes. And this is how, you, this is how it works. You, you, do, you put out great music, great teaching, make a place where people feel welcome and where they find community. Um, maybe that's all false. I, you know, it, did that work with the, is that what happened when the 12 disciples followed Jesus? I, I'm not convinced that that is what happened when the 12 disciples followed Jesus, right? I mean, maybe this means that we are doing church wrong. Maybe you're not supposed to look for a happy place where people think like you and make you feel safe. Maybe you're supposed to follow Jesus with whoever he calls you to follow him with. That's what happened with the 12 disciples, right? That group never would have happened, ever, if it hadn't been for Jesus. And I think following Jesus was relationally complicated if it hadn't been for the power and authority of Jesus and the authenticity of Jesus, it would not have happened. And that is what I want people to say about mission. That's what I want people to say. I want them to look at our church and say, how does this happen? Like, how is this possible that these people are in the same room? I don't want them to come in and go, ah, they're obviously all friends. They obviously have the same proclivities. They obviously, you know, oh, it's the band. Look, the music's really good. They all like that music. That's why they're here. Or it's the food. They all like food. They all get together for food. It's friends eating food. And, or they all grew up in church, and they're all annoyed about their church past or whatever, like, which is kind of a theme every once in a while here. But I don't want that to be the case. I want people to look and go, how in the world do these people stay unified? I want that because that would mean that it actually might be Jesus who we're following. And we're not just here for us, right? We have some more critical leaning disciples here, and that's good. And it's good we're not all that way. So I want to say three things, kind of two critical disciples and about critical disciples. So think about yourself. Do I, lean, do I like the tongue lashing sermons, you know? Do I, do I tend to always be out there going, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. If that's you, listen up. If it's not you, listen up, okay? Three things. We need you. We need you not to be alone. And we need you to see both sides of the coin. So we need you. We do. We need you. It would not be good if we weren't pushed to see the concerns and sins within the church. And it's not always easy. But I am thankful for those who've expressed Two things simultaneously, critique and commitment. At the same time, critique and commitment. Throughout the years, I've needed that. We've needed that in a lot of different conversations. Look, I mean, this is, this is just a fun one. Here's a fun one for you. I need to be aware, what I said years ago, you know, when I said the sun is a ball of fire, I need Garrett to go, um, Andy, have you ever read anything of, you know, pertaining to science? <laughs> he didn't quite say it that way. But yeah, he said it. He goes, well, it's really more a nuclear fusion or, you know. Um, I have remembered that. Thank you. I, I now look like less of an idiot in the world because of you. Thank you. Um, but people, people have pressed here. They've said, we need to pray more. We need more discipleship. We need more commitment at our church. We need people to be showing up and not being in and out. We need more 
um, you know, action. We're like, are we, are we taking action on this topic or that topic? We need that. Very, very important. We need the, the doctrinally minded people who, who study the scriptures deeply. And I know, Nick Muller, I'm coming for you right now. Are you ready in the back? Um, I, I need, he's not. Nick Muller. Nick Muller. Oh, come on. Come on. Anyway, we're going through Galatians. Nick Muller, this is a guy who he, I'm going to use the word literally, literally right now. Nick Muller literally translated it from the Greek. So every time I get up there, I just know Nick Muller knows way more about Galatians than me. It's just, it's true. And I need that. I need, I need somebody who can say, uh, actually, no. This, I, we need that. That's healthy. If we're all just action-oriented, we'll make mistakes. Simon Peter, for example, we read this in Galatians earlier in the year. He needed Paul to tell him that his action, when he stopped associating with the Gentiles, was not in step with the gospel. He needed him to critique his action with the scriptures and say, hey, when you didn't sit with the Gentiles because you were nervous about what the circumcision party was going to say, that was not in step with the gospel. It was theologically damaging, okay? Critical disciples, we need you but we need you not to be alone. When whole churches develop around criticism and cultures grow based on a set of issues you want to take a stand on, I have never seen that be good. I've never seen it be good. We need a well-rounded view of the body of Christ. It's, it's not the way Jesus selected his 12 disciples, right? He didn't go get 12 zealots. He didn't go get 12 tax collectors. He didn't get 12 fishermen, right? He did not. He built a diverse group. Um, Colin Hansen of the Gospel Coalition recently wrote an article. He was invited to speak to a Christian group at Cornell University. And I thought it was kind of perfect that John Simon put that, that picture up on our Instagram of Andy from the office with his Cornell magazine. It was like, how do you know I was going to bring up Cornell? But anyway, Colin Hansen was invited to speak at Cornell, and he asked the, the students there, he said, when you talk to your Christian friends and you talk to them about Christianity, what's their association? What do they associate with, Christ, with Christianity? And a number of them said Westboro Baptist Church. And he was shocked because he was like, no way. There's no way that a 70-person group that's called Baptist, but all Baptist denominations reject them, is th- who they think represents the whole of Christianity. So he started asking that question at other. He said, across the board, he has heard that answer so many times that that's the association people have. You know, oh, they're like those Westboro Baptists. And then the new association is the capital insurrection. That's the, that one is new. That people say, oh, there's those people who are at the Capitol. And it's because there were Jesus banners, right? Over that event and, and the whole world saw it. Now, look, we can't stop that from happening. But we can make it less common and when Christians gather around causes, just causes, this can be the result. Even small groups of us can paint the picture for the whole church. And that's, what's happened. that's, that's kind of what happened with Westboro. And it's rough. Now, beside the negative association, when you gather with people who generally see things the same way you do, discipleship suffers. I think discipleship suffers because God has designed his church to sharpen one another. So, You've heard the scripture, iron sharpens iron. You know, that's, that's how it works in relationship. 
That means that a durable material needs another durable material to shape it. So in other words, the believer needs a believer. The Christian needs another Christian. Another article I read recently was an old story from Ian Murray, and this is a British pastor and publisher. And it was about a time when Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a former pastor from London, um, who was a, a former medical doctor, confronted an influential pastor in Toronto. And he confronted this man because they were in the same circles. They had the same views of the end times. They had some of the same theological views. They were often in the same circles. And he knew he, he had a chance. And he saw this guy criticizing, always criticizing, and he believed it was causing basically like a worldwide stumbling block to unbelievers because he was, he was published, he was big. And so he, he had a chance to sit down with him and he told him, he said, look, you can make mincemeat out of the liberals and be in trouble in your own soul, is how he approached him. And the pastor retorted, this is interesting. He said, then why is it that I sell more pamphlets when I you know, point out people's sins? And isn't that kind of how it works on social media today? You know, you get more traction. You do, right? You do. And then Lloyd-Jones replied, I've always observed that if there is a dog fight, a crowd gathers. I am not surprised. People like that sort of thing. And the other pastor said, oh, you're a doctor and, you're confront- and, you- and you are confronted by a patient who has cancer. You know that the cancer if it's not removed, is going to kill the patient. You don't want to operate, but you have to do so because it's going to save the patient's life. That is my position. I don't want to do this kind of thing, but there is a cancer that has to be removed. What do you say to that? And Lloyd-Jones responded, I say that I am a physician, and there's such a thing as a surgical mentality, becoming what is described or (laughs) becoming what is described as knife-happy. He said, I agree. There are some cases where you've got to operate, but the danger of the surgeon is when they operate immediately. He thinks in terms of operating. And then he said, never have an operation without having a second opinion from another physician. And when he said that, this other pastor took a pause and told him he would consider his his approach. And he went home to his home church in Toronto, and he asked the people of his church what they wanted him to do And they told him to ignore the advice of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he did. And he continued to be critical. And if I named him, you probably have never heard of him. Many of you have heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Like, one left a gospel legacy. One was a really big deal and fizzled out. And that's not even the most important thing. One has made the kingdom compelling for the last hundred years. The other did not. Now, why didn't Lloyd-Jones have much influence over this person? He wasn't in his community. The people in his community were like-minded. They all said, criticize, because he built a culture. He built his whole ministry around criticizing. This is why I think it's important. You need to be in a church with committed members. That's where you're able to have influence, a regular, loving influence that's committed with commitment. When when you're a committed person who's there and always involved, your influence grows and grows in your community. 
And when you're committed to a community where people don't think a lot like you and you're committed, you can round it out. You can balance it out. If you disassociate or disappear when you're unhappy, your influence is squandered. If your input is rash or unfounded and is always not passing the test, your influence is squandered. You might end up being the boy who cried wolf, where people are like, you say something about everything every time. If you want to have influence, use it sparingly. Use it well. And whatever the case, the iron sharpening iron metaphor is two ways. One Christian is sharpening the other. And it doesn't happen with one pass. It's a process. It takes years. Think about the 12 disciples we're talking about. They spent three years with God, right? With God. And they still had a lot to learn. (laughs) They still had a lot to learn. You still see Peter, you know, getting talked to by Paul after Jesus has ascended, right? We need you, critical disciples. We need you not to be alone. We need you to see both sides of the coin. Jesus, who we followed, was described as being full of two things by the Apostle John. One, or sorry, in John 1, two things, grace and truth. Grace is undeserved and lavish favor and acceptance given from God as a gift, and it's a gift that Christians pass along. Grace, it is the most beautiful concept. And truth, truth can hurt. It can also heal. It isn't always critical, but it can be. Critics love truth, right? What about the truth? Except when the truth is they are wrong or jerks. That's hard to hear. The truth is always, it can be used as a weapon, right? But it also can be used as that surgical knife, and it can be really helpful. The trick is, and this is what happens when we follow Jesus in a committed community of the church as disciples of one master, is that we're moved forward in both, in balance, in grace, and in truth. Sometimes it's because we balance each other out in the community, right? Sometimes people say, ah, oh, well, you know, they're the critical one, I'm the nice one, we balance each other out. But I don't, I don't think that's all there is. I once did a spiritual gift test with a staff at a previous church. And I remember one of my coworkers, you know, scored like two on mercy. And so later on in the year, they did something, they were just like really abrupt to somebody. And, and they said, they were like, well, you remember me, I don't have the gift of mercy. And I, I remember in one of my stupid but profound moments, I just said, you don't get to use that as an excuse, right? You don't. That, that doesn't work. You should grow. When you see the spiritual gift test and you think of like the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, you should want to grow in the gifts of the Spirit. You shouldn't see, you know, mercy and God, I'm just not merciful. You should see that low number and say, I need to work on mercy. Lord, give me more mercy, <laughs> Right? When we follow Jesus, we all repent. We all move toward the Jesus who we follow. We all get conformed to the image of Christ. That means those who default less critical, kind of like I'm saying myself, we should become more willing to stand. 
Those who default critical need to grow in grace and show more mercy. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2 and just think about how this works out. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, he's describing all Christians. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. This sounds very John the Baptist, very denunciary, right? But wait, then he says this, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see where the criticism gets kind of tempered? It's when we come to the same realization that we are all the same. We've come from the same place. And we're all in need of the same thing. Because then Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Raised up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Apostle Paul, who I'm quoting, was definitely more of the critical type. He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the, the one who you know, couldn't stand, couldn't suffer Christians. But here we read him saying, look, all of us were dead in our sins. I'm included. And then he just talks about the mercy and the grace of God and how that changes everything. In Paul, I think we see a person who's getting well-rounded in Christ, who can see the point of calling sin, sin, but can also see the point of being all about grace. He is not one. He is not the other. He is both. He sees the way out of darkness and the deadness of sin is grace by faith. And even the faith is a gift. Freely given riches, not a result of work. No one can brag about it. And that fuels the good work of the Christian life. We need critical disciples. Critical disciples, we need you not to be alone. And we all need to become more like Christ. We need both sides of the coin. We need grace. We need truth. To do this, we need to remember who we follow and who unites us. And that's why we gather around Christ at his table, and nothing else. Andrew once sat at the Lord's table on the night he was betrayed, and Jesus took bread, right, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And that loaf of bread was handed to every one of those disciples, no matter their background, no matter their tendency, no matter their passion, one Christ, one body. And he took the cup saying, this is my blood of a new covenant shed for the forgiveness of many. And I will not drink it again until I drink it anew with you in my kingdom. But it's one blood that was shed. One kingdom that's coming. You can't come to 
your version of Jesus or your group's Jesus. There's only one Jesus. You don't end up in your kingdom with your kingdom type of people. There's one kingdom. We will all be united there in Christ. We might as well start walking in that now. That's what every relationship, every marriage, every friendship, parenting, being in the church is trying to teach us, is preparing us for the day when we will all be one in Christ. So we're disciples of one teacher, one savior, one sin bearer, one high priest, one king, one risen Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father. Now we're going to do three things. We're going to sing We're going to confess, actually, first. We're going to do a time of confession, silent confession. We're going to sing. We have giving set up for you in the back on the iPad there that's not there, I can see, but it will be. Um, And we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, During this confession time, I want you to think about a few things. We're going to go into this time of silence, and I want you to, to ask this question of yourself to God. What do I need to lay down to be in closer fellowship with your church, Jesus? And then confess your inhibitions and desires that pull you away from that. And then, if you're able after that, say, God, what do I have to offer? What part of the body am I, and how would you have me grow? Do I need to grow in grace and truth? one or the other or both, and just offer these things to him. I mean, confess before him your your failures, your sins, your faults. They're innumerable in all of our lives. And this, this is our God who says, come to me, all of you who are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. This is not a God who's just up there condemning. I mean, do you see that this is the holy, just God, the critic of all critics. He sees through you. But at the same time, he's full of so much grace. He sees you for who you really are. But like the prodigal son, he is there waiting. He's the father. He's got his arms wide open. You've squandered it all. Come and receive my grace and call it what it is. Let it be sheer mercy. So take this time to confess before him. I'll pray briefly and leave that two minutes of silence for you. When we come out of that silence... I'll be at the table ready to serve. And as you're ready, you can approach and I will uh, offer you Christ, which is all we have to offer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for every single one that you've brought together today. For those of us who are at home, for those of us who are here, I thank you that you have built your church. Thank you that the gates of hell cannot prevail against your church no matter how divisive it can all feel. Thank you that you bring together people who are different, who have different backgrounds, different angles, different passions, different criticisms, different hopes and joys. And thank you that we are a greater group of disciples for your choosing of us than if we chose for ourselves. Help us to commit to you and to one another Help us to love each other well. Help us to be that kind of church that just absolutely confounds the watching world where they say, how in the world, how in the world do they all get along? 
How in the world do they repent to one another? How in the world do they forgive one another? How in the world do they stay walking with each other and help the answer to be obvious? It would be because we follow Jesus. So may it be so to your glory. And God, as we confess, hear our prayers. Be merciful to us. In Jesus' name.